Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Passion, today. So turn in your Bibles to John 14, verses 1 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Heaven. Randy Elkhorn, in his book entitled Heaven, says that the sense that we will live after death has shaped every single civilization in human history. Australian Aborigines pictured heaven as a distant land beyond the western horizon. The early Finns thought it was an island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, and Polynesians believed that they went to the sun or the moon after death. Aboriginal peoples in North America thought that they would hunt the spirits of the buffalo. And the Gilgamesh epic, an ancient Babylonian legend, refers to the resting place of heroes and hints at the tree of life. In the pyramids in Egypt, the embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them as guides to the future world. And the Romans believed that they would picnic in the Elysian fields while their horses grazed nearby. That's all a part of a quote. You know, the point of all of this is that, look, there's a longing in the heart of all people, and this is what Elkhorn says, for the country or the place that lies beyond the grave. It's there in our hearts because that's where God placed it so that the idea of life after death is an innate sense in every single human being. In the same way, we also have an innate sense of God. The only way not to have that sense within us is to actually suppress it. You know, for instance, studies have been done on children, and almost all of them believe in God and life after death. It's, you know, it's only after years of evolutionary biology and naturalistic education that we actually teach them to ignore what they already knew was true. And so since people have a sense of eternity, they naturally begin to imagine what will happen after death. It's it's just natural. The amazing thing about the Bible is that God has parted the clouds. He's taken away the fog. He's opened the curtain, and he allowed us to see through the resurrection of Jesus what life after death is all about. See, I know it's unpopular in our culture to speak about heaven or hell. You know, many, even among Christians, will say things like, you know, he's too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. Just so we get that straight, it's only the heavenly-minded that are of any earthly good. It's the earthly-minded that have no idea what life or this earth is for. So we talk about this world and our vision for this life, and we think little about what comes next. Put it into perspective. Three people die every second in this world, 180 people every minute, nearly 11,000 every hour, and at the end of today, some 250,000 people will die. That's one quarter of a million people today, and then the same thing happens tomorrow and the day after and the day after that without rest. And the Bible makes matters clear. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The final outcome of every life is heaven or it's hell. I don't think anyone in the Bible spoke more about heaven and hell than Jesus. He knew that every one of us was on a journey, and heaven or hell is the final destiny of us all. I'm reading John 14, 1-6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, from this text, let me say that heaven creates a manner of living. You know, for one, if you believe in Jesus, you can stop worrying now. And just so you understand the first sentence of our text, the thought is not, don't begin to be troubled, but it's, don't be troubled any longer. You see, Jesus was looking into the face of his disciples. They were deeply troubled. I mean, put it into context. Jesus has just told his disciples a lot of troubling things. He's about to leave them, and where he goes, they can't come. One of them will betray him. Another will deny him. In the end, all of them will be scattered and confused and bewildered and disillusioned. The small band of followers who thought they were on the verge of ruling the earth will actually witness Jesus being dragged away and eventually crucified. Their faith would be devastated, and in this, we learn our first lesson about heaven. You can stop worrying now. I want you to imagine that you're 35 years of age and someone has just told you he's opened up a trust fund in your name. And when you get to 55, you're going to receive $55 million, just like that. Would that change the way you thought about your finances? Well, of course it would. You know, for one, you'd probably stop saving anything. You'd, you'd spend everything. You'd be as generous as you wanted to be, even if, if you lost your job uh, and took away your car and lost your house, and for a while were on the unemployment line, you'd stop worrying now. That's what heaven does to people. It, it creates in them a completely different way of living, that is, that is, if they truly believe in heaven. You know, the word heart, it's very interesting. You know, in the Bible, the word heart is the seat of a person's thoughts and feelings and choices and actions. You know, in other words, who you are in your heart directs the course of your life. If you want to know what's directing you, it's your heart. You know, Dallas Willard once said, those with a well-kept heart are persons who are prepared for and capable of responding to the situations of life in ways that are good and right. Their will functions as it should to choose what is good and avoid what is evil, and the other components of their nature cooperate to that end. They need not be perfect, but what all people manage in at least a few times in areas of life, they manage in life as a whole. So then a troubled heart, well, that leads to a troubled life. The world's full of people who are consumed with worry who have no faith, who live with unresolved guilt, whose life leaks out anger and lust and, and greed and selfishness, people who fear death and don't want to talk about it, and, and they do their best to suppress their baser nature. It's called a troubled heart, and Jesus says, you can stop worrying now. And second, you can live in confidence. Last part of verse 1, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. And other translations say, trust in God, trust also in me. And the sense in the Greek is that Jesus wants us to keep on trusting. He's told us about heaven. You know, Randy Alcorn, again, tells a story of a woman named Florence Chadwick. She's a woman who in 1952 attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the mainland of California. She swam for 15 hours and finally was so exhausted she couldn't go on. She was emotionally and physically exhausted and in failure, she couldn't go on. You know, it wasn't until she was on the boat that she realized she was less than a half a mile from the shore. And at a news conference, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I want you to consider those words. If you can see the shore of the world to come, you can make it. You can live in confidence. You can see the 
things of this earth in their proper perspective. That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Things are about to get rough, so let me show you the shoreline. Let me tell you what heaven looks like, and when you know that, you'll never give up. Now to verse 2, the assurance that heaven is a real place. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You know, please, lest you take this all as, you know, figurative and allegorical, let me put context to this. You know, first of all, we're talking about life after death, right? Yes, we are. Well, what is the life to come like? Well, listen to what the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So then our resurrection, what? It'll be like Christ's resurrection. You remember that Christ was raised in a physical body. According to Luke 24, 39, he had flesh and he had bones. He was not a spirit. He was physical. He walked with his physical legs. He talked with his physical mouth. And in fact, his vocal cords vibrated even as ours do today. He walked with his physical legs. He was recorded as eating. You know, only the Christian faith teaches of the resurrection of the body. And therefore, we teach that heaven is a real place. It's physical with sights and sounds and smells. There are rivers in heaven. There are trees. There are fruit trees in heaven. And more so, there is a place called our Father's house. You know, in Jesus' time, many dwelling units were combined to form an extended household and often centered around a communal courtyard. And a great many Greek and Roman villas were like that. They had numerous terraces and buildings. They were all locked together and they were situated among shady gardens. Beautiful trees, flowing river. You see, I believe in heaven and it will be like that. I will have an address in heaven. You can come by and you can visit me. That is, when I'm in, you know, I might be home or I might be worshiping at the temple or I might be on an assignment by God, but please hear me. Heaven, the way Jesus described it, is indeed a real physical place. You can stop worrying now. Who could have known where the world would find itself today? Well, we know nothing is beyond God, beginning to end. We find ourselves in challenging days, unprecedented for most. We're experiencing uncertainty, more questions, I suppose, than answers. But take courage, people of God. He is faithful. In response to our global circumstances, the next five weeks, beginning March 22nd, Dr. Neufeld will be releasing a special video series each Sunday morning. This series has been designed to provide weekly Bible teaching, particularly for those who may not be able to currently worship with their church family. In this series, Dr. Neufeld will provide unique messages of hope found in Christ. Join us this Sunday morning at backtothebible.ca as we search God's Word for today. And if you miss a message, no worries. Prior messages will be available online or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. There's time in heaven, there's space, there are physical objects, and you know, you and I will live in a physical reality forever, untouched by sin, untouched by illness, untouched by the temptation to sin or to act selfishly. What's fascinating is how the Bible describes this reality. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. 
Jerusalem will come down from heaven to earth and Jesus will rule there. I believe in heaven descending to a a new earth, an earth that is outstanding. Now imagine this thought. I mean, first of all, the Bible doesn't say that heaven always existed. Indeed, God created it. And what's more, this is precious. Think about it. God created the earth in six days, but he's been preparing a place for us for the last 2,000 years. And if I think of the grandeur of this earth with its mountains and rivers and lakes, this is only a faint representation of beauty. But that's not all that heaven is. Look at verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. It's as Jesus says, my Father's house. It's where Christ himself is. The language is the language of a bridegroom who builds a home for his bride. And when it's done, he comes and gets her and he takes her home. Now, some of us have been reading verse 3 as if it said, I will come again and take you to that place. So our thoughts are taken up in that place. That's not the emphasis here. Look again. I'm going to point out a little word that's there in verse 3. You see that word, to. It's, It's the Greek word, pros. It's translated correctly, but no English word can give it its full force. You know, back in John 1 verse 1, it said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with or pros God. The idea is that from all eternity, the Father and the Son have been not just with each other, but face to face with each other. They talk, they share deeply of their love, they fellowship with each other. And that's the same word here. Jesus is saying, when I take you to my Father's house, you and I will be face to face with each other. If you ever wonder, that's where I get that idea of seeing my Savior for the first time. I will see him face to face, and I long to see him. I want to fall on my face before him. I want to be taken up in his arms. I long to weep for joy with my head in his bosom. I want him to talk to me. I want to listen. I want to hear of his love. I like to hold his nail-scarred hands and witness how his sacrifice has made me his own. I want to hear about the day he created me and about the day he redeemed me, about the way in which he drew me in holiness. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to say it a thousand times. And I will know what David meant when in Psalm 17, verse 5, he said, And I in righteousness will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. I've never known but little faint glimpses of satisfaction in this life. But that day, when I see Jesus face to face, my soul will be satisfied. But that's not all that Jesus had to say. He's just getting going. Look at verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. You know, if heaven's a real place, then like every real place, it exists somewhere and it requires a journey to get there. And if it's really true, as Jesus said, the vast majority of the human race will never get there. You don't get to heaven by chance. It's not as simple as, you know, when you die, you'll get there. No, no, not true. You know, you have to know how to get to heaven. I want you to imagine someone going to London and they have no knowledge how to get there, none whatsoever, just a vague belief that one day they're going to arrive there. That's vain hope. And yet, that's exactly how so many people feel about heaven. I'm just going to one day wash up on the shores of heaven after I die. Hear me. Hell is the place where you go when you don't have a destination. On the other hand, heaven is the place where Jesus knows the way. That's, of course, where verse 5 is leading us. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
You know, sometimes we look at Thomas' statement in verse 5, and we roll our eyes and we say, well, that's Thomas again, the one who has a hard time believing anything. But in that, I think we're wrong. Thomas doesn't know how to get to the Father's house, and he's being brutally honest. There are, in fact, two answers to Thomas' question. One is an answer that Jesus has already given him, and unfortunately, Thomas didn't understand. And the other is a response that Jesus gives him now. So let's start first with what Jesus has already said to him. Two and three. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, watch this, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. You see, on the one hand, Thomas didn't have to worry. Jesus was going to come and get him. Don't let your heart be troubled. But notice the second part of verse 2. In other words, he's speaking specifically to his disciples. He was going to prepare a place for them, not for everyone, but for those who love him. Ruthanna Metzger was a professional singer, and she tells a story of an engagement she had singing at a wedding for a very wealthy man in Seattle's Columbia Tower. It's the tallest building in the city. It was a gala affair, and she and her husband were both excited about attending. And at the reception, waiters and tuxedos offered hors d'oeuvres and exotic drinks. The bride and groom appeared on a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. They announced that the wedding feast was about to begin, and all the guests began to follow them up the steps. At the top of the stairs, the maitre d' with a bound book greeted the guests outside the doors into the banquet hall. May I have your name, please? I'm Ruthanna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy. He looked at the book, stared long, and said, could you spell that, please? She spelled it, and he couldn't find it, and said, I'm sorry, your name isn't here. And she said, but I sang for the wedding. And he said, it doesn't matter. If your name isn't here, you're not invited. He motioned to the waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator. And they were both stunned and embarrassed. And as they were driving home in the car, Roy asked Ruthanna, what do you think just happened? And then she confessed it. Because I was the singer, I never bothered to fill out the RSVP. And Jesus said that some in that day will say, Lord, I drove out demons in your name. And he will say, I never knew you. Jesus himself compared heaven to a wedding feast, Matthew 22, 11 to 12. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, there's no way to get into heaven without an invitation without a formal invitation, without your name written in a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation 20.15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How do you get to heaven? Well, you need an invitation. And that invitation comes to us in the bloody cross of Jesus. There he paid the penalty for your sins, and there he suffered because of your crimes against God. There the justice of God was satisfied in his sacrifice, and that place on the cross, he made you an offer. Come to him, confess to him that you're a sinner, and tell him that Jesus' death on the cross should have been your death, and then believe that his blood was washed your sins away. It's not enough. You need to respond, and then tell Jesus, I surrender my life into your hands. Take my life, it's yours. And at that moment, you've responded to his invitation, and your name is in the book of life. Remember, I said that in one way, Jesus had already answered Thomas' question. But another way, there was yet something that bothered Thomas, and it's found in verse 6. 
Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, this verse is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, and we should never forget the context out of which it came. It came from a question as to how to find the pathway or how to find the road that leads to heaven. And it's a serious question because because of all of the silly things that people constantly say about heaven. You know, I've heard people say things like, well, all roads lead to heaven, or anyone who's serious or devout or good or spiritual or religious gets there. I've heard all sorts of people that had no relationship to Jesus at all say, of the dead, I'm sure you're looking down on me from heaven. That's the idea that so many people have. See, there's only one man who knows the road to heaven. He's the man who came to us from heaven, and his name is Jesus. He is the way. That is, he is the embodiment of all that is true, and that he alone has the keys to eternal life. Go to him. You know, it was D.L. Moody, the great evangelist who had become ill. After having spent a lifetime loving Jesus and following him, he told a group of people the news. He said, soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe it for a moment. Indeed, all who put their trust in him know the one who is the way, the truth and the life. The way is the way to God. The truth is the truth of how to get there. And the life is the eternal life that never passes away. Trust in Jesus. You know, John, we've, we've talked about heaven before uh, a number of times, and I think the reason is because I'm just so convicted that most people who talk about heaven don't have a clue what they're talking about. So it's so important that we understand the biblical perspective, Jesus' perspective of heaven. Yeah, and it, not only that, you know, when you say that, Ben, I mean, I think about all the times that, you know, even a Hollywood movie and, you know, everyone's in white and they've got clouds coming up to their ankles or something of that nature. But I think on the more serious side is also this idea that we're all just going to wash up onto heaven shore somehow. And, you know, and you hear this um, on a regular basis. And it's so important to continue to say, look, how do we know anything about heaven at all? How do we know anything about the afterlife? The only way we know is that the man who came from heaven told us not only what it's like, but he told us how to get there. I think we need to hold our ground. I think we need to clearly identify that we are sinners and that only Christ's substitutionary death can satisfy the righteous demands of the Father. I mean, all of that stuff, that needs to be said about the wonderful news about that there is a heaven. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues his series, Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, it's with great sincerity that the entire Back to the Bible ministry team wants to express its deep appreciation for the gracious support of all of our donors. But for this moment, we'd like to express our gratitude to those of you who support this ministry as monthly partners. In normal times, we recognize and value the important role you play. But in unprecedented times as these, the essential nature of your commitment to continue to teach the Bible and share the gospel could not be more obvious. So thank you. Please be assured of our daily prayers for you and your families in challenging times. We extend our gratitude for your partnership in the gospel. 
And remember, all of our resources continue to be made available online at backtothebible.ca. Or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425.